Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event live from Manchester. How can different levels of government work together to deliver levelling up? I'm Tom Pope, the Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute, and we're delighted to be hosting this event in partnership with Policy at Manchester, the University of Manchester's Policy Engagement Unit. Uh, the government's been making steady progress on its ambitions set out in the levelling up white paper to deepen devolution across England. For the proliferation of different regional authorities, directly elected mayors and other arrangements of councils, alongside different arrangements again with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, can make coordination difficult. Um, and there's a sense, I think, that central government doesn't always trust these other governments to, um, to deliver. This lack of coordination and trust can thwart attempts to reduce regional inequalities because different policy tools and responsibilities sit at these different levels. This is important for the success of the government's levelling up agenda, but also for any future government that takes reducing regional inequalities seriously. So in this event, we'll reflect on how coordination across government in the UK is currently working in the delivery of regional economic policy, explore what lessons we can learn from the experience so far of mayors and how they've changed the experience of collective working, and ask what needs to change to make it easier for governments to work together towards common regional policy goals. I'm, I'm delighted to have a superb panel with me today to discuss these questions. On my left, we have Councillor Ev Craig, who's the leader of Manchester City Council and the economy lead on the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Um, to my right, we have Professor Francesca Gaines, who is a Professor of Public Policy at the University of Manchester. To her right is Joe Rossiter, who's the Policy and External Affairs Manager at the Institute of Welsh Affairs, um, a leading Welsh think tank. And to my immediate left, we have, uh, to my far left rather, we have Dr. Jack Newman, who was until recently a researcher on the IFG and Bennett Review of the Constitution, and then now works at the Productivity Institute at Manchester. Uh, welcome all. A few bits of housekeeping just before we get started. Uh, we'll be live tweeting this event from the um, account at IFG Events with the hashtag IFG Leveling Up. So do please um, follow along, join the conversation there. Um, after some opening remarks from the panel and some um, panel discussion, we'll have plenty of time for questions in the second half of the event. If you're watching online, please use Slido, which should be just to the right of the panel where you're watching uh, this event. Um, do tell us who you are and where you're watch, uh, logging in from. And um, if you see a question that's similar to the one that, um, that you'd like to ask, please upvote that so we know what is the most popular question to ask. There'll also be an opportunity for questions uh, to be asked in the room as well. Please wait for the, the roving mic to, to come to you before then. I think that's all the housekeeping, so we can get on with the main events. Bev, I'll come to you first. As leader of Manchester City Council and the lead for economy, business and inclusive growth on the combined authority, how would you assess the current working relationship between local and central government? And has that improved at all in the last couple of years? Um, so I think probably it, it, it's worth saying that I, I'll speak primarily from my experience here in Manchester as leader of a council and also the role that we have within our combined authority in Greater Manchester. Um, and that in itself, I think, is a discussion because we have a range of different models across the country with different levels of power and responsibility that's been devolved. And that can make the landscape fairly complicated. Um, I think from my perspective, we begin from a position of being one of the most centralised countries in Europe um, and certainly in the Western world. So I think any progress that we've seen around devolution um, since 2016 has come from a very, very centralised place. 
Um, so I would say the journey that we've been towards devolving more power and control um, closest to communities is one that isn't yet complete. Um, you will have seen a lot um, in the media recently around Greater Manchester's success in our um, recent trailblazer of devolution alongside West Midlands. But actually, that's taken what was responsibility around transport, policing, um, and fire, with a little bit on adult skills um, and some responsibility of the administration and the management of our spatial framework, and added into the mix some further powers around transport and around skills. And actually, what we see um, is, is a model that's not yet fully formed or completed. So I think that's, that's where I would begin. Um, that, that the success of latest discussions, I would say in Greater Manchester, we only got part of what we asked for. And I think we're fairly honest about that. So actually, there still is a significant way to go that if we are the most devolved combined authority in England, alongside West Midlands, that that's not the optimal level. Um, I suppose, but I would also say that you can't, I think, just see that as a proxy of the relationship between local and central government. I think my reflection is that actually things have been more difficult over the course of the last few years. And some of those doors that were previously open to have pragmatic conversations um, with ministers and their civil servants around shared policy goals have actually become more frustrated, um, a little bit more short term in their views and really difficult. You know, if you think about a city like Manchester, we're, we're often known for our pragmatism in our ability to work with the government of any colour if it betters the needs of our population. So for me as the city of Manchester to say that we find um, some of those processes and those doors close, you might think would be partly political, but actually when I speak to local government across the country, that's something I think that's shared from parties of all colours, that actually, yes, there's been discussion around levelling up, yes, there's been um, a discussion around devolution with some trailblazers and and mayoral authorities taking form, the deal that we've seen in the northeast, But that fundamental relationship between local and national governments still hasn't been cracked. And I think what I also say, it's, it's the supplementary part of the question, is that if devolution is a mechanism to achieve levelling up, we need to understand what it is a government means about levelling up. Because actually, you know, from my perspective, if you think about if levelling up is about rebalancing the UK's imbalanced economy, um, some of the spatial inequalities that we see, some of the economic inequalities that we see, um, there's nothing in that that you could possibly disagree with. It's something that places like Manchester have been arguing for for decades. But actually, I think there's, there's often a lack of clarity around what the measures um, of levelling up would be and how we would record um, the mechanisms by which we achieve them. So... So I think, I think power, for power's sake, without understanding what it is that we want to achieve by it, is only ever a proxy for, for the real discussion that we're having. So I think it's a mixed picture, but it's a journey that's not yet complete. Um, and one in Greater Manchester that will continue to make the argument around subsidiarity, the purpose of taking a decision as close as possible to communities. If devolution creates a mini white hole in Greater Manchester, that's not devolution, that's not success. That's replicating systems and processes that haven't worked for local communities for decades. So we need to make sure that we're always at the vanguard of doing something different um, and not just recreating some of those structural barriers, but at a smaller geographical area. Great. Thanks very much.
uh, a great start to the conversation. Francesca, you've done lots of work on how political arrangements matter for policy outcomes. Does the UK currently have appropriate structures in place to help different governments work together on joint policy goals like levelling up? So, so that's the exam question. And um, if I was setting that for my students, I'd say clarify some concepts. So I'm going to start, start by doing that. Uh, just to say, I'm going to let Joe pick up on how the devolved national authorities work with government. And I'm going to look at levelling up through English devolution and place-based local leadership. And this, as Bev alluded, what does levelling up mean? And it covers several problem agendas. The problem of tackling regional inequalities and productivity and stimulating economic growth. The problem of huge disparities across and within places and regions in educational opportunities and life chances. And the problem of local communities feeling a loss of pride in their places and and, and a democratic deficit. Now, as Bev also said, these problem agendas are addressed through an ever increasingly complicated landscape um, of levels of government and geographies, even for us local government aficionados. Hitherto, I have been a strong advocate for the devolution experiment that began in Greater Manchester and for the early adopters and experimentation in areas like Greater Manchester because there was the history, the geography and the networks to run with it. And I felt that that devolution development gave confidence in Whitehall and in the local government community in how changes like combined authorities and directly elected mayors could work and and to begin to build the evidence base for how devolution can deliver a sort of proof of concept. And I think that that concept has been proved. Um, Policy at Manchester are bringing out a new publication uh, called Power in Place, which brings together some of the research evidence at the university around the impact that devolution can have on levelling up and and how that stimulates economic growth, can bring together partners to um, allow innovation, to develop local and industrial skill strategies uh, and address health inequalities. But your question was, are the current structures fit for purpose? And I'm going to say yes and no. So I'll start with the positive take. The levelling up and regeneration bill, I think, does some things that could provide some clarity for the political interests involved in Whitehall and in the civil service at the centre of government, combined authorities and local government. Clarity about what are the rules of engagement. So the setting of a levelling up mission statement and reporting structure, although not independent, can provide the basis for our reporting and evaluation structure to crystallise what Andy Holding called a place-based orientation in government departments. And then, secondly, the clarity of a framework for devolution for those that want it, setting out functions, budgets and responsibilities at different levels for new combined authorities is helpful It provides clarity for elected politicians in places across England in considering what to do. And these are difficult decisions and may involve, as happened 
in Greater Manchester nine years ago, leaders considering working cross-party and giving up power in order to achieve things for their places. And then the announcement of trailblazer deals in, in West Midlands and Greater Manchester seems like a major step forward, despite, I mean, accepting what Bev says about not getting everything, but in terms of having single-pot, multi-year deals and strengthened scrutiny arrangements, that's a development to be welcomed. So to be positive and glass half full, these are positive, a, a step forward from the previous piecemeal uh, stop-start and opaque development of devolution. But glass half empty, no, the UK doesn't have anywhere near the appropriate structures to tackle either levelling up or joined up working across levels of government because there are several long-standing deep-rooted governance issues that are not tackled. As Bev said, the very centralised nature of the UK state, still top-down policymaking and short-termism uh, of ministerial-led policymaking. And at the same time, local government doesn't have the fiscal autonomy or, or flexibility. Bidding to different departments for small pots of money is divisive, time-consuming and inefficient and still subject to treasury intervention. And long-standing issues that affect local government, like the funding of social care, are unresolved. I noticed in levelling up questions on Monday, one former, one Boris Johnson asking the current Secretary of State whether the stalled levelling up agenda is going to get back on track. And there is no doubt that in all major cross-government reforms, the backing, the strong backing of the Prime Minister and Chancellor is essential in keeping policies on track. So the question is, will the current structures, the missions, the framework, the regeneration, the trail laser, laser deals, will they have an impact? Will they last? How can place-based political leadership at the sub-national and local levels be enshrined in a constitutional legislative way to protect against rollback? Now, there are many fine ideas out there, not least from my colleague Jack Bennett um, and Mike Kenny. Um, I think now, that, and from the Brown Commission and various, there's a cross cross-party agreement from all of the select committees and all party parliamentary groups of what the problems are and there are solutions out there to be discussed. So concluding, I think the time has come now in the run-up to the general election, a bit like in the 1990s, to have a proper constitutional conversation that addresses the powers of government at different levels, the funding arrangements for local government, and reforming the political and administrative structures in Whitehall to support English devolution. I think there has to be a clamour for a constitutional commission within and across parties and levels of government to get meaningful constitutional reform on the political agenda for the next government to take forward. Brilliant. Thank you, Francesca. Now, as you said, you were leaving aside some of the sort of devolved questions um, and luckily we have Joe here today to um, to reflect on some of those and obviously devolution is much more established in Wales and really is of a different character yep. there than it is um, in English city regions 
I wonder what's your impression? Has the Welsh government felt like a joint partner in, in delivering levelling up? I think there's, you know, there's a short answer to that, which is no. I don't think Welsh government has felt like they're a partner in the delivery of, of levelling up. I think the post-EU funding arrangements for Wales specifically, you know, I can't really speak for, for anyone beyond that, um, has been a time of flux for, for devolved governments, really, especially um, at a national level. Um, so, you know, putting aside those questions in regarding to the kind of uh, the quantum of funding, the huge amount of funding that is going to uh, communities across Wales, Welsh government, Scottish government, local authorities across Wales have all kind of contested uh, the UK government's uh, not a penny less statements on how much uh, Wales is going to get after post-EU funding. So I think that kind of shows a picture on how frayed those relationships are when it comes to the delivery of, le- of the wider levelling up agenda in Wales. Um, and there's really kind of big constitutional questions that are coming up in the, in the rollout of levelling up. You know, we've seen uh, the repatriation of, of those funds, the administration of those funds and the delivery of those funds from EU level down to UK government level, when previously Welsh government had a really key role in rolling those out and shaping what they look like. Um, and, uh, you know, that means that Welsh government really have had a big loss of the control of the economic levers that and it would enable them to have an economic transformation that really Wales really needs. You know, GDP is somewhere around 75% of the rest of the UK. It's one of the most, you know, we've got some of the most deprived communities in the whole of the UK. And indeed, 19 out of 22 local authorities in Wales are recognised by UK government as being in the highest priority need for levelling up funding. And yes, uh, Welsh local authorities also receive the most per head of investment from the rest of the UK. Um, But is that enough? There's other questions around the devolution settlement as well um, and that kind of flux that I was talking about, really, um, is that a lot of the, the use of the Internal Markets Act has, has enabled the UK government uh, to really uh, deliver projects that are explicitly within devolved competency, whether that's you know, active travel networks, whether it's leisure centres, whether it's you know, road building potentially, which is a bit of a contentious one in, in Wales, um, let alone the... You know, in principle, regional economic development is a devolved capability anyway. Um, so really, you're seeing a bit of a rollback there when it comes to Welsh government's ability to deliver real change. Um, and yes, Welsh government really have a £23 billion budget to play with, and £400 million, of which um, European structural investment represented a year, is a huge amount of money to Wales. You know, Much of the £23 billion um, budget for Wales goes straight out the other door in statutory service delivery. So there's not a lot of money to play with. Uh, and when you lose control of that of that money, we've seen you know a lot of all Wales policy, which the Leveling Up Fund doesn't really enable uh, well, uh, UK government to deliver on because it's you know we've in local government uh, hands. Um, really means that all those all Wales processes that really helped re- regional economic development because they were they were programs that were delivered across Wales in local authorities across Wales um, are basically you know going out of business they're folding and we're seeing uh, lots of really useful projects that were from a pan Wales basis really closing down so that is again a really big problem and the European um, funds uh, also really helped to position Wales as a kind of political um, and uh, economic region in and of itself because it had this money to divert to communities across Wales. And yes, the valleys and West Wales were identified um, as, as needing uh, European regional development funds because they were amongst the most deprived communities in the whole of Europe. Um, and really, the levelling up agenda doesn't really enable Welsh government or UK government or local authorities 
to really target those interventions into those communities that are most at need. And there's a hell of a lot of those communities across Wales, um, really. So I think, thinking back to your question, your point as well around, cons- around constitutional change, I really think that this has started a conversation around constitutional change in Wales, because if uh, the established ways of working have been underwritten through uh, the levelling up process, then that really shows how precarious some of these, uh, the devolved settlement for Wales really is. Um, so there's an independent constitutional commission that is ongoing in Wales um, as well, which is going to look at, you know, what is the shape of Wales going forward, really, that I think this kind of brought on existential questions. So that's the slightly longer answer. But the short answer on the partnership point is a resounding uh, no, really, I would say. Thanks very much, Joe. Plenty there that we can get into later, I'm sure. Um, Jack, your work for IFG looked in detail at this question of intergovernmental relations, particularly in England's. What are the challenges for central government in working more effectively with other governments and how can it be improved? Yeah, thanks. So I want to start with a point that picks up on Bev's point about the unfinished nature of the Trailblazer deal, Francesca's point about the constitution, the need for constitutional change, and um, also Joe's point about the place of Wales and agendas like levelling up. And this is a failure to look at the question of English devolution, but also devolution more broadly as a system as a whole. Um, And instead, we ask and try and answer questions like, would it be economically beneficial if we devolved X power to X region? Um, And I think the centre needs to move beyond that kind of narrow view and instead try and address the question of what does the UK's different tiers of government look like as a whole system? I just want to make a few brief points about that. The first is the intertwining of the role of the UK government with the governance of England. This creates a number of problems. For intergovernmental relations between the devolved nations, it's very problematic because the government is the kind of umpire, the referee of the system, but it's also one of the players as the government for England. And that's difficult for the devolved nations. It also causes problems for England because the governance of England um, happens at Whitehall in a way that's mixed up with the governance of the UK, and that makes it very difficult to identify where England's being governed from and who's responsible for it. So I think trying to disentangle England and UK responsibilities would create something of a funnel or an impetus to devolve power within England, as well as solving some of those intergovernmental issues across the four nations. The second point I wanted to pick up on is just the broad incoherence. So this idea of the trailblazer deals being unfinished, lots of parts of England don't even have a deal. The geography is unsettled. Um, One of the graphics we produced as part of our report layered the different policy geographies in England on top of each other, the geographies for the NHS, for schools, for police, local authorities, etc. And none of them align. It is an absolute mess when you look at them all all together. And that might be annoying for those of us who have certain rational minds, but um, it's and kind of, I've been accused of having a cartographic mind, being obsessed with maps and how they look. But it it is actually a problem for policymaking on the ground because if your health services don't align with, for example, your education or the governance of transport, then you can't realise one of the huge payoffs of devolution, and that's cross-sector policymaking. One of the big opportunities of devolution is being able to look at issues and problems across policy sectors. So if we're talking about preventative health, um, we don't just talk about the NHS, we talk about transport, we talk about education, etc. 
Um, and then another big problem with the incoherence is who's accountable. Um, the public don't really understand how devolved and local government works, and they find it very difficult to know who's um, to be held to account. This is very problematic if you have different geographies overlapping because the outcomes can't clearly be linked to a particular policy or um, particular political actors. Um, and this takes me to the last point I want to make, which is around accountability as a whole. And accountability is um, the kind of skeleton of the governance system. It's what makes the whole thing um, work and make sense. I want to distinguish between three types of accountability that are often conflated together. The first is upward accountability, the way in which um, local councils and combined authorities are accountable to Whitehall. Whitehall want to know that um, these devolved institutions are taking certain actions or following certain processes because they are in turn accountable to ministers who are accountable to parliament. Uh, and that upward chain of accountability is still the core of the UK system. And until that changes, the likelihood is we will continue to be one of the most centralised countries. There are two other types of accountability that are important to mention. One of them is internal accountability. So um, the Greater Manchester Authority is um, accountable to the leaders of the constituent local authorities and to a scrutiny commission. And I think there's been some good advancements in this area, particularly with the English devolution accountability framework um, and in the trailblazer deals as well. But the big missing piece of the puzzle here is that downward or outward accountability where local governments, combined authorities are accountable to the public. Yes, the public elects representatives, but turnout is very low. We compared turnout across a lot of countries over the last 50 years. Um, England was consistently below 50% for local turnout. All of the comparative countries were way above 50%. England, um, the UK in general, but England specifically has a big problem with local turnout. Um, and again, with knowledge and understanding of how local institutions work, is lower in England um, than in comparable countries. And a lot of this has to do with the complexity of the system and the public understanding how it works. A lot of it has to do with low public engagement, with the decline of local media. So there are big problems um, about that link back to the public. Um, some progress is being made, but, but perhaps not enough. And then the final point I want to make, really, that links to this is that if you want institutions that are going to last into the long term, you need the public behind them. You need that identity link between local people and their local institution. No one's going to be able to abolish the Scottish Parliament. And the reason for that is not because of rules written in the Constitution, it's because of Scotland's sense of nationhood. Um, so... The idea of Manchester identity is one of the most important things that backs up the stability and longevity of the Manchester Command Authority. The building, nurturing and harnessing that link between local people and local politicians, I think, is absolutely crucial. Great. Thanks very much. I will shortly be coming to the audience, um, both in the room and online for questions. So particularly if you're online, do you keep adding those questions to Slido? But I just have a a couple of things that I'd like to follow up on with the panel first. So one thing that came across quite consistently, I think, was this issue of short-termism, and particularly the issue of you know, perhaps central government being quite short-term. What is it about sort of how central government sort of relates to local government that makes it hard for you to plan for, for the long term? Um, so I think there are structural, but there are also tactical issues at play. You know, and I, th I think we need to be pretty 
open, don't we? There will be a general election within 12 to 18 months. And I think we've been in a territory where for many years, actually in this country, kind of governments have been thinking four to five years ahead rather than 10 to 15 years ahead. So I think that that's baked into our political system. And I suppose by, by way of example, it talks a bit to, to some of these pots of funding. Um, so obviously the move to a single settlement pot at a combined authority level through trailblazer negotiations is to be welcomed. That's not being replicated at a local government level though. That's specifically only for the funds from those specific departments from Whitehall that flow into combined authorities. And I suppose to give a bit of an example of that, so if I think about Manchester City Council's budget and I think of where we've gone over the last 13 years, we now stand probably at an annual revenue budget of about £730 million per year. Now that's in a reduction of over £430 million a year revenue from that. So we would be over a billion a year had the policy and political changes of austerity not happened over the last 13 years. But the reason that that's important to reflect on is because actually what what has happened is as new funding has flowed through to local government, it's come in these competitive pots. Um, So much is made of the the beauty parade that is levelling up um, as a structural fund. You know, and I I would sort of make two points in this. Um, The first is that if you're really honest and open about tackling um, regional inequalities, it's not just the civic pride and hanging basket component that needs to be addressed. It's the fact that for cities like Manchester, despite the significant economic journey we've been on, child poverty statistics still show that we're the third highest for the numbers of kids growing up in poverty in England. Um, so, so we need to be honest about what we mean about tackling inequalities within that. But putting aside that, that pot of money, actually other money that's flowed in. So I think most and I won't talk about the public sector toilets grant fund, which I swear to you exists. And anybody that wants to get money for a public loo has to go through this national system where it's easier just to fund it yourself. Um, but the example I give, actually, is the National Parks Fund. So I've obviously only been leader now for 18 months and had the pleasure of opening Mayfield Park, um, the first city centre park in 100 years in Manchester, back in September. Now, that cost us just over £40 million, million pounds worth of investment for restoration, for remediation, and for the cultivation that we see. Tremendous privilege as a leader to open a city centre park, loads of great coverage, got back into the office a week later, like, this, this is really good. Received an email um, from um, government officials saying, congratulations, you've been successful in the National Parks bidding scheme. And that's brilliant. You get to have another park. Um, the Manchester public will love this. And then I read it. And the National Fund, something around the territory of £8 million for a National Fund. And Manchester was successful in getting around about £70,000. Now, I'd opened a park that just cost me £40 million. What, what am I meant to do with £70,000? So, so it's these little illustrations, I think, that show that if through levelling up funding people are paying for leisure centres, people are looking at bridges, some of this structural funding can be dealt with in an entirely different way. So short-termism, both in terms of long-term infrastructure planning, which doesn't really happen so well in this country, is also, I think, um, endangered by um, tactics. And I think we're in the territory of um, 
tactics getting in the way of long-term plans around sustainability and investment, I see. Joe, actually on funding, that's an area that is quite different for Wales with the Barnet formula, meaning that lots of the money is sort of no strings attached in that sense. Have you found, has Wales found it easier, therefore, to sort of plan for the long term in that way? Well, Welsh government don't particularly have a seat around that table of levelling up, so that's a question in and of itself. But I think for for the local government side of things, you know, we've got 22 relatively small local authorities in Wales. You know, we've got some big hitters like the Cardiff um, City, for example. Um, but the capability of those local authorities to produce bids that are competitive, the resourcing, you know, as well as the, you know, the wider capacity of those local authorities, when it can be a really small uh, rural local authority in Wales, um, you know, it's not a level playing field when it comes to putting together bids that seek to, you know, in essence, transform um, uh, regional economies. Um, And I think there's an interesting point around, you know, what Bev was saying as well, around 15 years of kind of austerity and that hitting local authorities really hard in Wales, um, to the point where, you know, they're really there for statute for doing statutory um, uh, duties, really, that they have to do and not really having very much around the outside to play with. You know, Cardiff does, but many other local authorities don't. So repackaging what should be money that is uh, sustainably financed, that local local government is able to plan sustainably for five years, 10 years uh, in the future about what your community looks like and repackaging that as what is a competitive bidding process um, that runs you know, on two-year timescales rather than a seven-year timescale that EU funding enabled really does have a big um, impact on you know, the whole picture of regional development in, in Wales. Um, and I think also to the, to the wider accountability point as well, um, the fact that each of these different funds, levelling up, shared prosperity, speak to different people uh, also really complicates it because um, you know, you've got city growth deals in Wales, you've got four that represent um, different regions of Wales, um, and they're set up uh, whilst another fund is going straight, straight to local government, but then the other lot's going to, lo- to the city growth deals, and Welsh government have a bit more of a say when it comes to the, to, the, uh, to the SPF, really. So it's a really mixed picture, and that has a really big impact on democratic accountability. You know, in, in Wales, we have a kind of ailing uh, media landscape that really means that there's not much capacity for people to really dig into and understand who, you know, along the which side the M4 is responsible for something happening or something not happening. Well, the levelling up and shared prosperity funds kind of muddy that even more than it already was muddied, really. Um, Francesca, I know that you you spent lots of time thinking about sort of the the leadership of local government and maybe the the role of mayors. I'm interested. Do you think that sort of having those those single accountable leaders might help particularly in relationships with the centre to have a single point of, of contact? Well, I, I was part of the team that evaluated the introduction of city mayors back in 2002. And I have also done some research looking at the police and crime commissioners who are directly elected uh, and also following the progress of the new metro mayors. I think Clearly, the, the directly elected political leader has some clear benefits in terms of a single point of contact, uh, a very visible face for a place, uh, the ability to draw together political, civic and business partners to exercise that soft power. Uh, and they're very motivated to get votes everywhere in a place. 
And so that means that typically you see directly elected leaders do go out to places, have conversations that are, are, are developmental. So, for instance, I've been a member of the Greater Manchester Women and Girls panel and um, I've just stepped down, but the last meeting, Andy Burnham came and agreed to come and talk to the panel twice a year, uh, agreed to work with the panel on developing various proposals around uh, employment, skills, education and violence against women. That's a, a new kind of relationship within the, the broader landscape of relationship building. I think, I think that's very helpful. I, I also think that it's very helpful that the mayor has to work with the 10 leaders of the local mm -hmm. authorities. I welcome also the new scrutiny arrangements around overview and scrutiny because that will, you know, there are over 600 directly elected councillors in Greater Manchester to have a way of connecting those people in their communities with looking at what's happening helps with that democratic um, understanding and sharing of the knowledge about what's happening. So I welcome that. Great. Um, I think now would be a good time to come to some audience questions. I'm going to go to a couple online first, but then I'll come to a few in the room. Um, so I'll just take the, the top two most um, approved questions online. The first is, Labour has stated it is happy with messy institutional structures. Do you think that is problematic? And how best do you address the sense that only pursuing devolution via mayor or county combined authorities is too rigid? And then the second one, which may be mainly for you, Jack, is what is the rationale for why more aligned geographies, e.g. across health, transport, etc., would lead to better outcomes? What would happen that doesn't happen now? Do you want to have a go at those first, Jack? Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, on the second one, I think the alignment for geography um, has a accountability benefit, but in terms of policy making benefit, it's that able, it's that ability to make cross sector policy more effectively, join up institutions more effectively that clearly share the same boundaries. This happens in Greater London um, and Greater Manchester much better than it does in other parts of the country. So, I think that cross sector policy making is the, the key advantage there. In terms of the messiness question, just very briefly, I think it depends what kind of messiness. So um, it might be the case that the same political arrangements don't work in every part of the country. So in the west of England, for example, they're trying to use the same model that Manchester has, but they have one Conservative council, one Labour council, one Lib Dem council, and it doesn't um, particularly function very well. So potentially some political arrangements might work better in some regions than in others. Um, but I think the problem with this kind of comfort with messiness is you move away from that idea of trying to view the whole thing as a system. And it's only as thinking about these different tiers of government as a system that you'll be able to get those questions right about geography, about accountability, um, and about cross-sector policymaking. Great. Yeah, I feel like it's a slightly loaded question <laughs> from someone that perhaps doesn't agree with the Labour Party's position um, on, 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 on kind of what's been set out through the taken back control um, act. I think, I think there is a point, though, that if, if you look at Messi, we probably couldn't get any more messy than we are at the moment. So I think, I think we have to start from a place that accepts that we're not in an air of uh, perfection. And I think when you think about, when I go out and speak to people, one of the things that's complicated is that, and Francesca talked about this in terms of the soft power versus the hard power, 
as to who's actually in control of what. And even in Greater Manchester and even in the West Midlands, there remains confusion around is it your local council, is it the mayor, is it national government, all of these questions. I think the geography one, though, is important because one of the reasons that Greater Manchester has been able to come together as we have done throughout the course of the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and the precursor that was AGMA is that it makes sense broadly as a wider um, region. And I think where things have become more complicated is where you've not just got um, one or two um, cities in, in, in Manchester and Salford's case, um, but with a clear core to your city region. You're not able to tell the relevance of your story or your geography that things become a bit more complicated. And I think the bit that has to be um, knitted through by any future government is to what size of population and geography is optimal for this kind of level. And I think that's the bit that we've not yet grappled with. I think looking at, you can look at models in, in Germany that have naturally got smaller areas that, that kind of are more comfortable with that smaller um, geography. Or you've got kind of some of the, the models more towards American models where you've got kind of city and state relationships. I think there is still a fundamental question. So what kind of size are we talking about for mayoral models? You know, if you look and compare and contrast what's happening in the northeast with the northeast deal versus um, a smaller city region that we might see um, in and around Bristol, there is still, I think, some work to be done. And I would say talking to local authorities in other areas of the country where they don't have an immediately clear economic or practical geography that they could um, amalgamate themselves into, that's a question that those communities have to be worked with. Because if you simply imposed, you know, and we, we've done this with some of our neighbourhood working, um, all the international comparative research demonstrates that if you really want to take decisions as close to people as possible when it comes to health and local services, you're looking for population geography of about 50 to 70,000 people as that lowest possible level for neighbourhood working. But my boundaries don't really work with people's reality of boundaries. And I'd say, when we talk to people across Greater Manchester, you know, you have roads in our city region where you can literally cross the road. And the only practical difference is that somebody different collects your bins or your bins are a different colour. And I think sometimes in, in local government and, and when we talk about local governance, we get quite carried away with ourselves in thinking of our own significant importance because we get it. We get the role that we play. But for the vast majority of residents, actually, it's much more seamless. And unless your geographies can try and speak to the place that people think they live in, where do you say you're from when you go on holiday? If you're abroad and somebody says, where do you live? Being able to speak to those questions actually starts to grapple that. So I think, I think the Labour Party position is trying to just be cognizant of the realities of geography, as well as just looking at geography from an economic perspective. Great, thanks very much. Beth. Anything to add to that, Jessica? No, only I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I would like to uh, have a more logical system, but, but I think one of the things that's been very clever with the approach that Michael Gove take, took is to offer carrots, not sticks. And I also think that's in the Brown Commission. Um, and I think that people have to have those really difficult conversations. And they're the best people to know how to do that. Um, so I, I, 
coming in the end, I think it's probably best left with carrots, not sticks. Although I do completely take on board Jack's point that there needs to be, I, I think there needs to be some clear um, political and administrative reform at the centre of government to facilitate that. So if I can just come back in, I think, I think one of the reasons that, that we're in this territory, so if you think back to the last Labour government, when they were talking about regional discussions, mm -hmm. that didn't land particularly well. So I think it's the legacy mm -hmm. of, of some of that history that's at the forefront of people's minds. Yeah. In the interest of time, I might take some more questions, and then, Joe, you can maybe answer those, and that last one as well. One down here at the front. Hi, thank you. I'm Simon Parkinson. I'm a Chief Exec of the WEA, the Workers' Education Association. We work in every devolved authority across England, as well as directly through English government and Scottish government. I want to just ask the panel about the role of civil society in the levelling up agenda more, more widely, broadly. And to Bev's point, the short-term nature of funding and how that's driven down to delivery partners, so competitive, short-term tendering, very you know, immediate results-based payment by results. You know, is that the right relationship for government at all levels with you know, a civil society that probably holds some of the keys to really enabling levelling up to happen? Great, okay, thank you. Any other questions in the room? Yeah, the lady just um, a couple of rows back. Um, Judy Collins. Um, I work across Greater Manchester with the Greater Manchester Older People's Network and Ageing in Place. But I live in the south of Trafford, which is privileged and wealthy. Um, we found, I think, in the last local, ele all local elections that in our area, it's Greens and Lib Dems taking over from the major parties. And in the north of Greater Manchester, a lot of independents um, representing various topics. Um, I wonder whether the panel think that that's helpful or not. Great. Is there one more question in the room? Gentleman just over here. Hi, I'm um, Norris Rosario. I'm from Eco-Humantropolis. I'm a UK multidisciplinary researcher. Um, what I'd like to um, say, first of all, is I'd like to thank the panel for being very transparent and um, impartial with their views. And I'd also like to say um, where you are all part of a broken machine, um, which is the UK government, and you're basically cogs to a broken machine. And it is a matter for the ground level to follow policy and procedures as well and not follow um, the broken machine. Um, so I, I hope to, that you will continue with your transparency and your impartial views and um, enforce uh, the correct procedures. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, role of civil society, Joe, and you may not want to cover the sort of ch changing local no. political landscape in Manchester. I'll, I'll take that to a side <laughs> question. I think it's a good one. Um, I think... It all goes back to that lack of transparency, really, on all these different funds that are at different levels of government. And it's quite difficult for how the public is meant to understand what's going on there, especially as in Wales, we're having some you know, electoral reform, we're having boundary changes. You know, there's a lot of moving parts here that make it quite difficult for 
you know, an average person to understand what is going on. Um, and I think in regards to that collaboration with, um, with, with, with business or between local governments and local authorities is an interesting one. We spoke to um, both businesses and local authorities in Wales, and I think it's interesting when you're saying be transparent with each other, local authorities, talk to each other about your bids. Well, yes, from that SPF level, because you need to work together as a region, but then if there's elements that you're bidding for in a competitive fund uh, against those local authorities, then you're not going to be as transparent. It's not, you know, it doesn't help you to collaborate as a region, which is, is sorely needed. So I think, you know, there's cross purposes there, really. Um, and I think within Wales, we've got this pioneering Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, um, which is meant to establish, you know, long term decision making. Um, into policy and there's five ways of working that, uh, and collaboration is one of the key ones um, that all uh, public bodies are meant to be acting um, and this doesn't help us on that trajectory I don't think so yes as well as the you know the broader civil society point of view is um, there's not very many think tanks in Wales like the IWA you know uh, and the the media landscape as well doesn't help into that because there's not enough uh, journalists on the ground that have a real knowledge of what is going on in Wales um, in order to kind of scrutinise um, the rollout of both levelling up and shared prosperity. Okay, Francesca? Well, um, I'm, I'll try and bundle up these questions and actually point to some research that I did with my colleague Liz Richardson here in Greater Manchester on strengthening participation and how civil society and elected local representatives can work together within the structures of combined authorities and local government in order to enhance the, 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 the uh, offer from each and to develop really productive working relationships. And that, that's mentioned in this Power in Place publication that Policy at Manchester are bringing out is a nice summary for that. But um, that absolutely addresses the fact that there is a need to draw in civil society voices as well as business voices but also how that can work with elected representatives in areas who, who are the people who go out and knock on doors um, and have are very closely in touch with their communities and I think using local councillors more is really important especially since I've just been elected as a town councillor I've got flower pots um, so, so, so I, th I think trying to sit them all together, um, civil society, um, you know, we wouldn't be where we are in terms of what, what we deliver, deliver as communities and societies, what the role of civil society. In, in Manchester, um, we recognise that the benefits come over the longer term and actually where we can not do short-term transactional funding um, is, is, is much better. Um, our tenure strategy and plan for the city is is culminated by the Our Manchester Forum that represents all sorts of different aspects um, of the city, from our voluntary community sector through to our age-friendly board, through to our inequalities task force, through to businesses um, and separate um, subgroups that cover every area of life in Manchester. And it's only really when you bring civil society into the room that you're able to have those deep and meaningful conversations on the short termism of funding and um, particularly when we were given three-year um, financial envelopes by government it was much easier to do so so we decided that our grants program for um, community groups and for voluntary community sector organizations shouldn't just be one year 
So moving to three to five year cycles, but that is enabled and helped by having a longer term settlement rather than simply an annual settlement, which is what we get at the minute. And um, on the political um, geography and diversity point, I think I, I suppose there's very unique circumstances in in some of those areas, and I would reflect perhaps in in your area that kind of Greens and Lib Dems appear to be winning from Conservatives, and it wouldn't really be for a Labour politician to reflect on why that might be. Um, but but I think probably there, you know there's a history in Greater Manchester. If you think about when devolution um, was formalised, a Conservative leader of Trafford, you know we've recently had a Conservative leader of Bolton, and we've got a Lib Dem leader of Stockport. Actually, there comes a point when you have to be able to step beyond. Um, some of what happens at the ballot box to be able to deliver benefits for your residents. And I think broadly, um, we, we have more political maturity in Greater Manchester than you might see in some um, areas. And on the uh, the broken system and impartiality question, I'm not sure fixing a broken system can be done impartially, so that's probably a conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think this question about the political diversity at the local level is an interesting one. Two points. One is that um, people from different parties generally work together better at the local level than they do um, at the, the national level. Um, not always, but as a, as a general rule, I think. Um, and the other point is whether, the, um, whether changing the voting system at the local level might open more opportunities for that kind of party collaboration. Um, that's not something I've fully made my mind up about, but I think it's a question that should certainly be considered and looked at. Um, and then, yeah, on the question of tri- transparency in a, um, in a broken system, I think the absolute um, crucial point is to have um, external scrutiny that might come from civil society, it might come from businesses, it might come from universities or think tanks um, and the media as well. And Joe's made the point a couple of times about the decline of local media and it's so important for connecting people to their politicians in a way that provides scrutiny, but also links them to what's going on. So I think a lot more investment is needed, probably through the BBC, um, in local media that scrutinise. Great. I think we have time for one more question in the room, which I'll bundle in with a couple online. So is there anyone else? This gentleman. Uh, Tony Parkinson, approaching 87, so long since retired. But uh, I remember in my youth, Manchester as a hive of activity uh, from manufacturing point of view, excellent universities, etc. And look where we are now in a, in a, in a changing world in terms of attracting uh, businesses and also built in the education system, preparing our young people for the skills which they will need uh, uh, to uh, generate um, um, employment. Um, And, uh, you know, contrast that with Germany. You can go back 30 or 40 years when there was a lot spoken about Germany's educational system for the less academic child, providing them with the skills to gain employment which, once you've got that workforce, can attract businesses to England. So what I'm asking is, working across parties, what is being put in place which is going to uh, develop and attract, you know, the future employment possibilities in a very, very changing world? Great, thank you very much. And I, I will lump that in with one question online and one question of my own. So the 
most popular remaining question online is, would the panelists be able to reflect on lessons learned from the past 20 plus years of devolution? Have devolved governments actually been able to level up their areas despite receiving more money per head than England? If not, why not? So I might actually be more one for you, Joe, than, than everyone else. And then I just, if, if you could sort of wrap, wrap this into your closing remarks, if there was one sort of concrete ask of central government that you'd have to sort of help, help you work more effectively or help local governments work more effectively with the centre, what would that request be? So we have a question about the, the skills system and attracting um, the right employment, a um, question about what we've learned from devolution over the last 20 plus years, and yeah, your, your one concrete ask. Jack, I'll start with you and we'll go down the line. Okay, thanks. No pressure then. So I think the, the skills question, um, huge, complicated um, question. So very briefly, a thought is that um, linking it to local industrial strategies is crucial so that education isn't just thought about as a, in its own niche, it's thought about in relation to the economy, in relation to other big questions, net zero, etc. Um, and then a, a big ask from central government, I'm probably going to sound like a bit of a stuck record here, but aligning the geography and getting the departments to use the same geographies. Not always the case. Clearly, you want your water supply to match what the landscape looks like, etc. But trying to, I think that's a broader point about getting Whitehall to think more spatially, more territorially, getting Whitehall to think more generally about what the geography of the UK looks like and how the policies it passes or implements affect different areas in, in different ways. So that more spatial thinking at Whitehall. Great. Deb. Three big things to try and cover in approximately two minutes, which anyone that's ever heard me speak before knows is not an easy thing to get me to do. Um, I, I think a really good um, and pertinent question, Tony, and good to see you again. It's been many years since we first bumped into each other on sci-fi highs and borders as a newly elected councillor. Um, from, from my end, I'd say, if you think about where Manchester and Great Manchester is now in comparison to the 80s and the 90s, I think that demonstrates some of what we need to do. The city of Manchester alone has increased our population by nearly 200,000 people over the course of the last 20 years. And that's been driven by three things. It's been driven by um, jobs and opportunities for Manchester people and our growing population to stay. It's been driven by attracting global businesses that bring world-class talent into the city region. And it's also been driven by retention of university graduates as well, which now stands at around about the 55% mark for um, both universities in Manchester. The bit that's missing in that jigsaw is a coherent national picture around what we need for what would be known as technical level education and skills. And you have seen a lot in the press recently about Greater Manchester beginning to have that conversation as to what we need to be able to harness that. I think the thing that I'd surmise is that um, Manchester's continued economic growth will only be deemed successful when it's around connecting um, people already residing in the city region into those jobs and opportunities and that runs kind of to the core of what it is that we're trying to do um, on the point around levelling up and, and spending I won't speak for Wales but I would just question the narrative that anybody can say they want to level up but you need to be really clear what actually you're levelling up if you want to talk about poverty and equality you're going to freeze the local housing alliance you're going to bring in a benefit cap that restricts families to two children per household and you're going to embark on a programme of structural um, cut reductions in budgets um, over the course of 13 years. That ties at least one of our two hands behind our back when we wish to do that. So there's a question around what it is levelling up wants to achieve. Is it just about driving regional productivity? 
that doesn't necessarily solve inequalities. So I'd say that that is a remaining and contested space when we talk about what that means for our communities. And then the final thing I'd say in terms of the think desk, won't surprise you coming from local government, but having a single part that is multi-year would be one of the most successful things you could do for local government to be able to give security, sustainability and the ability for long-term planning and how you spend their money. Great, thanks very much. In one minute, if possible, Francesca. Very quickly, um, I think one of the real strengths of what's happening in Greater Manchester at the moment is the way the three universities are working with the combined authority to support the development of innovation hubs uh, and the the, uh, development of higher-end skills. Uh, And that's an evolving landscape, but I think it's a very important one. Um, In terms of lessons learned, I would say it is places, politically, place-based political leaders know best how to do the joining up to deliver on these key policy problems. And my asks would be, just as Bev has said, really, a fair funding, clarity about fair funding for local government. And, and this relates to uh, other aspects of dealing with inequalities, including childcare as infrastructure is utterly important in terms of giving parents and carers the chance to retain their place in the workforce, to retrain, return. That would unleash productivity as much as the investment in transport. One last word to Joe. Yeah, devolution, success or failure. That is a tough one to answer in one minute. But what I would say, reflect on, you know, the old adage that devolution is a journey, not an event, and that Wales has constantly been evolving over that 20-year process to get more powers, more and more powers, and that the Senate of the Welsh Parliament is now going to have 96 MSs in the future rather than 60, and that that really enables much better scrutiny and policy development. So I think that's a positive. Um, in regards to something that could change is giving Welsh Government a seat at the table, essentially, and making sure that all levels of government are in the room at the conception of these funds, not just, you know, bit part players as and when it happens. And I would reflect on the free ports announcement in Wales, two free ports in Wales, which was more than was expected. Um, when was the last time you saw uh, Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford and Rishi Sunak uh, announcing a joint policy agenda in Wales? Doesn't happen very often. That links to, um, you know, a role for Welsh government in collaboration of what policy looks like, taking apart whether you think free ports are a good or bad thing. I know they're very divisive. Great. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you to Policy at Manchester for making this event possible. It's been great to have Francesca and Jack on the panel. This is actually the third in a series of four events on levelling up that we're running with Policy at Manchester. We have the next one on the 27th of June. I'm looking at what policies will drive big economic change. Um, at our offices in London. So for those online, you may be able to join in person. For those in the room, you may be able to join online. Um, Thank you to everyone uh, for coming in person and for watching online today. There will be a recording up within 24 hours, so do share that among people who might have missed it. Um, And all that remains is for us to thank uh, my brilliant panel for their contributions.